The passage before us in John chapter 4 and reading at verse 19 to 26 deals with the subject of worship. And the term worship refers, at least when you look at the vocabulary used in the New Testament, such words as proskeneo means to bow down, to kiss the hand, to do obeisance, to prostrate oneself before an object or person. There are terms used like lotrio to serve or to perform religious or cultic duties. Liturgio means to minister, and the noun requires an understanding of priestly service. There are a number of terms that are used for worship. But worship, in its essence, means to acknowledge and celebrate God's worth. And John 4 and verses 19 to 26 covers this matter of acknowledging and celebrating God's worth. John 4, 24 is at the very heart of the New Testament description of worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is a seminal statement on the nature of acceptable worship. You recall the context from earlier this morning, if you were with us, that Jesus is traveling to Galilee. He's going through, traversing some area in the north where he comes to the well of Jacob at Sychar and encounters an immoral woman. And in the conversation, Jesus offers her living water, a reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus touches on the subject of her husband and reveals to her her own lifestyle, her immoral lifestyle, that she had married five times and was living in an unmarried relationship. Evidently discomforted by Jesus' revelation, she diverts or switches the conversation to more comf- a more comfortable subject that is the proper place of worship. There she says to the Lord Jesus, Our father, in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Among the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans was the subject of worship, and particularly the place of worship. The Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim, going back to Deuteronomy 27, was the proper place of worship. Whereas the Jews argued that Mount Zion in Jerusalem was the only legitimate center of worship. And so there was this divide between the Samaritans and the Jews regarding proper worship and the place of worship. Now let us be clear that the Samaritans, as I mentioned earlier today, were partly Jewish and they were also in terms of descent from foreigners. One of the things that the Assyrians did when they conquered a nation is that they deported the people who lived in that area, took them to a strange place, and then they took other people from other parts of the Assyrian Empire and relocated them into the area from which they had deported others. And so what happened when they took away the Jews in 722 BC from Israel and from Judah, they brought in foreigners. And these foreigners intermarried with the Jews and they became known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans were different in terms of religion. Because what they did was that they accepted the 
first five books of Moses, called the Pentateuch. Their Bible consisted only of Genesis to Deuteronomy. They did not believe in the writings of the prophets or the book of Psalm. And from that book, those five books of Moses, they came to the conclusion that worship should be conducted on Mount Gerizim. And this woman was of this belief. And so Jesus turns her away from this issue of the place of worship to the nature of worship. She was quite concerned about what the Jews thought was the right place of worship. But Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. There is an endemic ignorance in your worship. You do not know the true God. But we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jew. It is through the Jews that God will deliver his people. Now, Jesus then goes on to clarify what true worship is like. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For God is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I think here we have a statement that begins to explain the character of New Testament worship. The character of true worship. God is spirit. And at least that means that God is invisible. That God is infinite. And that God is active. He's spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But what then must we consider as true worship? First then, true worship must be seen as essentially Trinitarian and particularly Christological. I'm going to emphasize this. The true worship of God is essentially Trinitarian in character and particularly Christological. You will notice that this verse teaches that God is the object of worship. God is spirit. And referring to God the Father. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is the object of worship. Luke Timothy Johnson cites an interesting bit of research regarding church attendance today where he said that most people will return to a church if their children are well cared for, if the music is contemporary, and if friendly people welcome them, and of course if the preaching is relevant to their needs. What is interesting about this list of things that will attract people to return to worship is the glaring lack of the object of worship, the living and the gracious and the sovereign Lord. There seems to be in much of our worship a crisis of deus absconditus. We believe that God hides himself. He reveals himself and hides himself. But it seems that there is a missing God, a hidden God in much of worship. You find it often in the contemporary songs that we sing. You hardly know at times to whom the song is offered. There is no mention of God or mention of our Lord Jesus Christ. It could be, for all intents and purposes, a love song sung to somebody of importance to us. True worship is worship that is Trinitarian, that is offered to a specific object, to God. Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him, must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
He's the object of worship. Our Lord Jesus expects worship to be given to God the Father. In fact, when he was tempted, he rebuffed the devil. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall serve. Matthew 4.10 The Apostle Paul speaks about how he served the Lord. Latriel. How he served the Lord, a, a religious term, a, a reference to the cult. And when we talk about cult, I'm not talking about people with abhorrent beliefs, but rather to the organized worship. He serves the Lord with his spirit in Romans 1.9. You notice in the New Testament, doxologies are offered to the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews also makes clear that we worship God. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. If New Testament worship and true worship is Trinitarian and thus necessarily means worshiping God the Father, true worship as revealed in the New Testament is worship that is centered in Christ. It is Christological. Authentic worship is uniquely Christological. And this is one of the developments in the biblical theology of worship as you read from the Old Testament to the New. Because this was not clearly evident in the Old Testament that worship ought to be Christological. Now, Jesus says that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. These two concepts, spirit and truth, clarify on one hand that worship that is acceptable to God is both subjective and objective. It is worship in spirit. It means that there must be a sincere adoration of God, a worship that comes from the heart. Kevin Van Hooser, a professor of systematic theology at Trinity Divinity School in Illinois, says that Immanuel Kant fiercely opposed organized religion. He believed in a privatized religion. And so when he was in a, a procession, an academic procession into a church, say at convocation, he would slip out of the procession because he did not want to be in a church which symbolized organized religion. When Jesus says that the worship of God, true worship, is worship in spirit and in truth, he is not saying that true worship is merely a privatized worship, but rather the true worship is sincere. It is worship in spirit. That, that it is not so much that worship is external, the right place, the right posture, though these may be of importance, such as, say, such as kneeling or standing, or following the right ritual, true worship must come from within, from the heart. But worship must not only be in spirit, it must also be in truth. That it is, worship of God must be in accordance with the revelation of God and how he has demonstrated and revealed himself to his people. This emphasis upon worship in spirit and truth is no minor point made by our Lord. And as Van Hooser says, it in fact addresses two endemic problems in worship. That is, hypocrisy and idolatry. These two toxins poison the well and rob it of its life-giving effects. So that worship in truth is the antidote to idolatry. While worship in spirit is the antidote to hypocrisy. Moreover, these two concepts, to worship God in spirit and in truth, may not be seen as merely separate ideas. One article governs both of them. And when Jesus says, that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Sincere worship, sincere worship that is in accordance with God's revelation. That when you read 
John's gospel and you consider the term truth, it becomes more and more evident the truth is not merely propositional, but rather truth is personal. John describes Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true vine, the true bread, the true temple. And so to worship God in spirit and in truth does include worshiping God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the truth. And the rest of the New Testament fleshes out that authentic worship of God must be rooted in Jesus Christ, who is truth. In fact, we find that John tells us that the Son must be given the same honor as the Father. In John 5.23, we see worship given to him in the Gospels. Like the calming of the storm, how the disciples bow down and worship. I think we ought to take on board the caution of R.T. France, the great New Testament commentator, who writes and tells us that the Gospels do not provide clear evidence that Jesus was worshipping a formal sense during his lifetime. And I think that that is a point that we ought to consider. Because many times we see in the New Testament people coming up before the Lord and bowing before him and calling him sir. And much of that might just be respect or reverence for his position. So while we take that on board, we ought also to balance that with the, with the recognition that it seems that there was genuine worship given to the Lord. When one thinks of his post-resurrection appearances... How the disciples worshipped him. Matthew 28 and verse 9. Thomas called him my Lord and my God. You will see that even in the Gospels. Though worship was embryonic. It was nevertheless authentic. The New Testament goes on to show that Jesus. Also receives worship. You hear the writer says now may the God of peace. Who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. That great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working you know what is, what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And then he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In Hebrews 13. Or now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You see, in these doxologies, Jesus himself is worshipped. And Paul says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. He, these are doxologies, as you have here in 1 Timothy 6, 13 to 16, given to Jesus. And so what I'm saying then is a true worship. The worship to which Jesus points this woman, a worship in spirit and in truth, involves worship to God the Father and to Christ the Son. And the New Testament makes this more evident. The church offered worship to Jesus Christ. Stephen prayed to him. Believers addressed him as Lord. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, concluded that epistle with the Amer Aramaic expression, Maranatha, O Lord, come, is referring to Jesus. And N.T. Wright says the fact that he leaves this, this term, Maranatha, untranslated, suggests that this was already a known concept. This was already a part of the New Testament canon. 
You see, worship is given to Jesus. And Paul in Philippians 2, 10 to 11 sees that one day every knee will bow to Christ and every tongue will confess to him. As such, Jesus then is to be worshipped. True worship. And worship in spirit and in truth involves worship in Christ. I'm arguing that true worship is Trinitarian. It involves worshipping the Father and of the Son. For whereas John 4, 24 does not mention the Holy Spirit. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Clearly, to worship in spirit and in truth does not refer to the Holy Spirit. But we must never forget that authentic worship given to God involves the energizing agent, the Holy Spirit. That is, we worship God the Father, we worship His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we worship in the Spirit. You notice what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3 and verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3 verse 3. That any worship that we offer to God or offer to the Lord Jesus Christ must be done in the enablement and the dependence upon the Spirit of God. It is He who empowers worship. So that if we go to God without depending on His Spirit to, to worship Him, that worship is inauthentic. Because worship is offered to God through the Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit enable us to worship? Well, He enables us to truly confess the Lordship of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul takes up this matter of spiritual gifts. There were those in the community who considered themselves to be the pneumaticoi, the spiritual. And Paul corrects them. He wants them to know that to be truly spiritual does not merely involve having extraordinary spiritual gifts. But he says this, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That those who are truly spiritual are those who are empowered by the Spirit to call Jesus Christ, to acknowledge Him as Lord. He does not mean that it is impossible for someone to say Jesus Christ is Lord with his mouth. But no one can genuinely adopt this primitive statement and confession of Christ's Lordship. No one can genuinely accept this and the implication that it brings to one's life unless that person has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He also goes on to show in chapter 12 that the Spirit empowers worship by imparting a variety of gifts. And he begins and he deals with the extraordinary gifts and also the ordinary gifts. I won't go through these because this is not what I want to focus on. So the Holy Spirit enables worship by first of all working within us to embrace and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He empowers worship by giving us Spiritual gifts. Also, the Holy Spirit enables the worship of God by assisting believers to pray. And so we read in Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Paul recognized the weakness of believers to pray especially those who are suffering. And he says that God has given them the Spirit who assists them in their inability to pray, so that they may pray aright. He intercedes for them with unuttered groanings, unspoken intercessions. And whereas we are at times able to pray 
in a manner that does not please God, that is not consonant with the will of God, the Spirit's intercession on our behalf never misses the mark because he always prays katatheon according to God. My argument is that worship, true worship, worshiping spirit and in truth, is Trinitarian. It is offered to God the Father. It is offered to Jesus Christ, the truth. And it is offered in and through the empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And even when we are unable to pray, the Spirit enables our prayer. We have two intercessors. We have a heavenly Lord who intercedes. And we have the indwelling Spirit when we cannot pray aright. Because of the suffering and the hardship. Utters and prays according to God's will on our behalf. God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is these worshippers that God is seeking. And so what is the nature of this worship that God seeks? Well, it must be Trinitarian. Rooted in an adoration and praise of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit. But if the new covenant worship, the worship of the New Testament that Jesus brings to this woman is essentially Trinitarian and particularly theological. The worship of the New Testament consists of four critical elements. New Testament scholars generally agree that Christianity began as a sect of Judaism. There was not in the early days a distinction made between Christians and Jews. Many Christians were worshipping in the temple and in the synagogues. And it appears that the Christian worship, the form of Christian worship, followed the pattern of the tabernacle. Admittedly, the details of the synagogue worship are largely obscure. But broadly speaking, it seems that the Sabbath or the, the worship of the synagogue consisted of these elements, of the Shema, of praise and prayer, reading of the law and prophets and the sermon. And the Christian worship, early Christian worship, it seemed was indebted to the synagogue. But it was also essentially a new way of worship. First of all, the church gathered on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, rather than the Sabbath, Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. It represents the day when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. A new era had dawned with the, with the resurrection of Jesus. It reminded the believers of the centrality of Jesus' resurrection. But this worship of Christ was, of course, bringing new things to worship, things that were not known by those around and outside of the Christian faith. We do not have a precise order of worship. But what we do know as we canvass the scriptures is that worshiping God in spirit and in truth consists of four main elements. First of all, New Testament worship, worship that is pleasing to God, has as its priority the word of God. Those who worship God must not only worship God in a Trinitarian manner, but they must worship God and keep in mind the four critical elements of worship. What are these? Well, the first is that true worship gives priority to the word of God. You cannot miss this in the formation of the early Christian community. Because when the people were saved on the day of Pentecost, we read, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. What were they doing? 
They were devoting themselves. They persisted or persevered in the hearing of the didache, the teaching, the teachings of the apostles. You see, true worship must be rooted first and foremost in the word of God. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The word of God was singled out as essential for the life of the church. Interesting that in some religious traditions, the pulpit is placed somewhere on the side. But in our tradition, the pulpit is exactly where it should be. Because it is the preaching of the word of God. That is central in worship. You notice this not only because the early church gathered to hear the apostles doctrine and teaching. The apostle Paul instructed Timothy regarding his main calling. He was to read and expound scripture in Ephesus. Till I come give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. What did he tell him as his duty? Not to organize groups. Not to have barbecues and all of these things. He was told to give attention to scripture. To read it. To expound doctrine. He says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. And be instant in season and out of season. Preach it when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine in 2 Timothy 4 1 to 2. You see, God is a speaking God, and His people must be a listening people. Worship, true worship, has four elements, and the chief among them is the Word of God. That there is no true worship of God where the word of God is not truly preached. Just like the Mosaic law was at the heart of the Old Testament community. The apostles doctrine controls the life of the New Testament community. And it is by the doctrine that the church becomes the pillar and ground of the truth. But New Testament worship consists of a second element. It consists of the element of prayer. Jesus could direct the disciples. He says, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Luke 18, Jesus states that his people must always pray and not give up. The book of Acts demonstrate that the early church not only devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship, but to prayer. That when they gathered together, they were praying. Paul tells the Philippians, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God in Philippians 4 verse 6. Paul writes tersely, but profoundly to the Romans in Romans 12 verse 12. He says, Devote yourselves to prayer. That true worship consists of these elements. The word of God and prayer. He tells Timothy Paul, that is, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplication and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all who in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So the New Testament teaches that the worship of God must involve... The word of God and prayer. But there's a third element to worship. That is the element of praise and thanksgiving. The New Testament church was filled with praise. Singing of songs unto God. And you see an exhortation given to the Ephesians in chapter 5, 18 to 21. That underscores the pivotal role of praise in true worship. 
And so Paul says to the Ephesians, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the main verb, to be filled. And then he uses a series of participles, five participles, which are going to qualify what it means to be filled. Now, these participles do not sum up the entirety of what it is to be filled, but are indicators of a spirit-filled life. So he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to one another in the fear of God. These five participles are calling upon believers to praise God. Now when he says speaking, singing, and making melody and giving thanks, he's saying these are what constitute worship. Not in its entirety, but they are essential to worship and particularly to praise. The first three participles, speaking, singing, and making music in one's heart, refer to the same reality. What Paul does is that he shows us that in the worship, true worship involves both a horizontal aspect and a vertical aspect. That when we sing and when we praise, it does have an impact on the body. Notice he says that they must speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now when he says this we're speaking, it doesn't mean that we they must be quoting psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's simply saying that they must sing. But in singing, they are to sing psalms. Psalms. He's referring to the 150 psalms we have in the Old Testament, which was the hymn book of Israel. One of the great lament that I have is that we don't see more psalms in our worship. The psalms were given as the hymn book of Israel. They were God's inspired word. I don't think we can sing a more theological... I don't think we can think, sing more theological than, than singing psalms. And by the way, please don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating that we should only sing psalms. But I'm saying that we should not exclude psalm singing from our worship. Because these are God's inspired word. Speaking to one another in psalm and in hymns, these denote sacred poetic compositions primarily to express praise to God. They are to sing spiritual songs. And this express the full range of spiritual hymnic composition given to God. And you see, they ought to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We need to know that hymnology did not end in the 17th century. I, I do agree that there, there, there's, a, there's much theological content in the older hymns. But we shouldn't think that's because a hymn is old that it is somehow sacred or necessarily good. There are some very bad old hymns. Just like how there were some very good new hymns. But we are to speak to one another because you see, as we sing and as we praise, we are instructing and we are encouraging each other mutually in the things of God. So worship, especially praise, has this horizontal dimension where we are speaking to one another, we are encouraging, we are teaching through so the very songs that we are singing. We are to be speaking to one another singing and making melody in our hearts. And again, when the scripture tells us to make melody in our hearts to the Lord, it's not saying we're to be singing internally, that is we're to be singing silently. But to sing and to make melody in our hearts is encouraging us to address our worship to the Lord and to address our singing from the heart. We're to praise God. And in praising God from the heart, we are to also instruct one another. 
You see, worship then involves these four elements. The word of God. It involves prayer. It involves praise. We must be offering reverential, joyful worship to our God. And Christian worship must be filled with joyful worship, with joyful singing, giving thanks to our God who has done great and mighty things for us. But worship involves another element, and that is the observation of the ordinances. Two ordinances were given to the church. The ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The early church obeyed the Lord by baptizing those who believed. Because it was there, it was that evident, visible manifestation that they have come to union with Christ. They were also required to celebrate the Lord's Supper. To symbolize that Christ's blood, that his death was the final payment for sin. It symbolized that they were united in depending upon Christ's death because they were sharing from one loaf. And true worship then consists of these four elements. The word of God. Prayer. The singing of hymns and praises to God. And the observation of these two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. There were other things in worship, like giving of gifts. These are aspects of worship, but the core of worship are these four. The word of God, prayer, praise, and observation of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Observation of the ordinances. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But if we take nothing away from all of this, let's, let's remember that true worship must not only be Trinitarian and particularly Christological. It must involve these four elements, true worship, as recorded by the New Testament, embraces all of life. There is a sense in which worship can be seen narrowly as what we do when we gather on the Lord's day. But for the New Testament writers, true worship was embracive of all of life. That is, worship did not merely end on Sunday, it included the entire week. Worship relates to all of life. All of life is worship to God. Displeasing or pleasing worship, but nevertheless an offering to God. You see that the Apostle Paul views worship as involving the entirety of one's life. For in Romans chapter 12, verses 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul is using the language of the tabernacle and the temple to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, this is what the Israelites did. They brought sacrifices to worship. Now Paul says, I want you to give your entire life, your thoughts, your actions, Everything that relates to you, I want you to offer it upon the altar as an irretrievable gift. You see, when a man brought a sacrifice to God and he gave his lamb, he couldn't go back and take it for himself and go home with it. When he gave it, it could not be retrieved. It was an offering given to God. And we are to give ourselves as an offering that cannot be retrieved. And Paul says, for this is your reasonable service, but the language that is used there, the language of latria is a religious term. It means this is your spiritual act of worship. So that by giving yourself completely to God in your thoughts and in your actions, in every part of your being, you are giving to God worship. 
You're giving to God worship in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your aspirations, in your outward words and in your deeds. All of this is worship. We need to know that worship does not end here. That all of life is to be considered as worship to God. So Paul says we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of service. You see that Paul views worship as much more embracive than simply gathering on the Lord's day. In Romans 15, 7 to 13, the Apostle Paul is concerned that the Romans are divided over dietary matters. And are judging one another and he encourages them not to do so. And then he provides a brief overview of his ministry and his preaching. And he says this, he says, especially when you look at verse 15 and 16, he says that grace was given to him to be a minister of Jesus Christ. Ministering the gospel of God. That the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But what does, what does he say? What the Apostle Paul does is that he views his evangelism of the Gentiles as worship. You see, he uses the term liturgos, which refers to minister. It's a priestly act. What I'm trying to say to you, Paul views all of life as worship. That we give ourselves to God as an act of worship. But Paul views his evangelism as a priestly service to God. In writing to the Philippians, Paul views the giving of gifts as sacrifice, as worship. He says, indeed I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus a thing sent from you, a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. Philippians 4.18, Paul is using the language of the cultus, the language of the worship. He says, when you have sent money to help me in my ministry, you are giving to God a sacrifice that is pleasing just like Israel brought the sacrifice and placed it on the altar and it was burnt and the aroma pleased God by you giving this money, this help to me in the ministry. You are giving to God worship. The writer of Hebrews teaches us that worship involves the whole of life. In Hebrews 13, 15 to 16, therefore by him... Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. Giving thanks to his name. So we may worship God by praise. We've seen that. But then he does something interesting. He says, but do not forget to do good. And to share. For with such sacrifice. The language of worship. God is well pleased. He's saying your good works, your sharing with others is seen by God as an act of worship. True worship is fundamentally Trinitarian. It is a worship of God the Father, a worship of God the Son through the empowerment of God the Spirit. But true worship has an irreducible component that of the word of God prayer that which includes the singing of praise to God and that which includes the observation of ordinances the two ordinances you see whereas the Old Testament charts the centralization of worship in Israel the New Testament displays its transformation from the Jerusalem cult to the church and Dear Carson makes an interesting observation. He says, Christian worship is new covenant worship. It is gospel and spirit inspired worship. It is Christ centered worship. It is cross focused worship. And Peterson agrees. He says, We must come to grips with the New Testament perspective that acceptable worship 
is an engagement with God through Christ in the Holy Spirit, a Christ-centered, gospel-serving life orientation. You see, true worship then must be grounded in praise to God. It must come from the heart. Both mind and heart involved. We must praise. We must pray. We must remember the Lord. We must testify to him in baptism and remember him in the ordinance of the Lord's table. We must preach the word. We must sing hymns. But even though these are the heart of worship, true worship involves a whole person all the time. It is not merely celebrating and praising God. It is offering our lives to God as worship. We are to then offer up ourselves to God. God seeks worshipers. What is God doing? He's looking for men and women who will worship him. And he wants us to worship him in the right way, in the way he is revealed. But he wants us to worship him with our whole beings. He wants us to use our daily routines, our day in the office, our time at home in doing our chores, our interactions with other Christians and non-Christians. All that we do should be offered up to God as worship because we have a God who is great and mighty you see we're the Christian there is no such distinction between secular and sacred all of life is sacred and all of life is worship so when you get onto the DVP tomorrow morning and somebody cuts you off let's us remember and I say that to myself Let's remember that even there you can offer worship by your attitude. You can offer up your response as an act of worship to God. May we praise him in the church, the triune God, using the elements that he has revealed, but we, may we praise him with all our lives offering to him obedient service across the entire spectrum of our lives. God seeks worshipers, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth.